Welcome to episode five of Equity and Trusts. I'm Hayley McEwen. This week we're looking at the principle of fiduciary duties. Equity recognises fiduciary relationships in its exclusive jurisdiction where one party, who's called the fiduciary, owes a duty of undivided loyalty to act exclusively in the interests of the beneficiary, also called the principal. The terms can be somewhat confusing because although that beneficiary isn't the one holding themselves out to represent another party, that's actually the fiduciary, they're the one to whom the duties are owed and therefore called the principal. It is said to be a relationship of trust and confidence as the principal trusts that the fiduciary will act honestly on their behalf. Because the relationship places the fiduciary in a position of power over the principal, in the sense that the fiduciary may abuse their position and take advantage of knowledge or opportunities arising via that position, the duties are strictly enforced. So if a fiduciary breaches their duty by placing themselves in a position of conflict between their interests and that of the principal, it's irrelevant whether their actions were deliberately dishonest or whether the principal in fact suffers loss or makes a gain from the breach. The mere fact they've put themselves in a position of perceived conflict or potential conflict is enough to attract equity's intervention. And this has caused some words of caution to be offered by the judiciary against seeking out hard and fast rules, such as in the 1984 High Court case of Chan and Zachariah, where Justice Dean commented that, quote, one cannot but be conscious of the danger that the overenthusiastic and unnecessary statement of broad general principles of equity in terms of inflexibility may destroy the vigour which it is intended to promote in that it will exclude the ordinary interplay of the doctrines of equity and the adjustment of general principles to particular facts and changing circumstances and convert equity into an instrument of hardship and injustice in individual cases, unquote. Therefore, it's important once you commence with a principle of fiduciary obligations to then apply it to the facts and circumstances of each case to see if a breach has in fact occurred. Traditionally, equity has recognised certain relationships as automatically assuming the existence of fiduciary obligations. These include that of the trustee and beneficiary, solicitor and client, agent and principal, employee and employer, director and company, and partners in a business partnership. These categories aren't closed, and on occasion the courts will hold other types of relationships, such as stockbroker and client, to fiduciary obligations. Outside of these recognised relationships, though, there are general criteria which may indicate when a fiduciary relationship will arise. While there's no magic formula in determining this, the principles that were outlined in Obita Dicta of Justice Mason in Hospital Products Limited and the United States Surgical Corporation case of 1984 have been affirmed in subsequent High Court of Australia cases and appellate courts as indicating the essence of a fiduciary relationship. So these factors include where the fiduciary undertakes to act on behalf of or in the interests of the principal, where the fiduciary's exercise of a power or discretion will affect the interests of the principal in a legal or practical sense, where the principal may be vulnerable to abuse by the fiduciary of their position. So this often occurs where the fiduciary provides financial or related advice to the principal, though not always, and the principal places trust and confidence in the fiduciary, and the parties are engaged often in a commercial joint venture 
but again, not always. So once we've turned our minds to whether a fiduciary relationship exists, the next step is to determine the scope of the obligations within that relationship. So it's important to note that just because a party stands in a fiduciary relationship to another does not mean they owe the principal fiduciary obligations in all dealings with that other party. A person may be a fiduciary in some activities but not in others. For example, there may be a distinction according to time or the subject matter of their dealings so that parts of their relationship are fiduciary and parts are not. It's necessary to identify the scope of the fiduciary relationship by reference to the facts and circumstances surrounding the dealings between the parties in order to determine whether a breach may have occurred. So in the case of Howard and Commissioner of Taxation 2014 High Court of Australia case, Chief Justice French and Justice Keane said, quote, the scope of a fiduciary duty generally in relation to conflicts of interest must accommodate itself to the particulars of the underlying relationship which gives rise to the duty so that it is consistent with and confirms to the scope and limits of that relationship. It is to be moulded according to the nature of the relationship and the facts of the case, unquote. So what is a fiduciary's obligation to act in the best interests of a principal? It's said that the core obligation is one of loyalty. What this means in practice is that a fiduciary must always act in the interests of the principal and must not place themselves in a position of conflict between their interests and duties or between competing duties and must not benefit personally by reason of their position as a fiduciary. These duties are referred to in brief as the no conflict and no profits rule. Again, intention is irrelevant. Liability arises from the mere fact of a profit having been made or from a real or substantial possibility of conflict arising. It doesn't matter that the principal stands to benefit from also making a profit or that the principal would not have been able to make use of the opportunity presented to it. So in the frequently cited case of Boardman and Phipps, 1967 House of Lords case, Boardman was a solicitor appointed to assist in the administration of an estate where the trust property comprised of shares in a private company. Boardman and another beneficiary mapped out a plan to restructure the company and improve its share value by purchasing shares in their own names, since under the terms of the will, the executors could not acquire any further shares. In doing so, they became majority shareholders and throughout this process, Boardman declared he was acting on behalf of the estate. The result was that the share prices rose sharply, so all shareholders benefited, including the Phipps Trust. Despite this, John Phipps, a beneficiary of a 5 of 18th share under the trust, brought an action seeking a declaration that the defendants held 5 of 18th of their share on constructive trust for him and that they should account to him for that proportion of profit they made on their own account. A majority of the House of Lords held that Boardman and Phipps were fiduciaries who had breached their obligations. It was in Boardman's position as a solicitor for the estate that he acquired the information about the true value of the company, and Phipps was a fiduciary because he held himself out as an agent of the trust. As a potential conflict of interest could arise involving their own interests and those of the trust, and they had in fact benefited from their position, a breach had occurred. What 
defence might be raised to defeat a claim of breach of fiduciary obligation? Well, assuming that the conduct complained of is within the scope of fiduciary relationship, then the primary defence to a breach of fiduciary obligations is that of informed consent. That is, a fiduciary must make full disclosure to the principal of everything he or she is planning to do that would constitute the breach. It's not sufficient for a fiduciary to disclose information which is sufficient only to put the principal on inquiry. All material facts must be disclosed. Again, a court must determine this by reference to the facts and circumstances surrounding the course of dealing between the fiduciary and principal. This defence may more easily be proved where the principal obtained independent and skilled advice from a third party or was recommended to do so. In terms of remedies, where a principal is aware that a breach is imminent, they may apply to the court for an injunction in equity to restrain the breach. However, where a breach has already taken place, the court will commonly call the fiduciary to account and declare that any profits are held on a constructive trust for the benefit of the principal. An order for equitable compensation may also be made where the principal has incurred a loss as a result of the fiduciary's breach. Recourse may too be had against third parties who knowingly receive property in breach of fiduciary duty or who knowingly assist in the commission of a breach of fiduciary duty in circumstances that we'll discuss in further detail with reference to the Barnes and Addy distinction later on in this series.